Good morning, church. I'm both privileged and humbled to be up here today and not, not a little bit anxious um, because of the weight of the gospel. Yeah. I speak in front of people quite frequently, and yet with a message like this, how can one not be somewhat unsettled? So as always, the glory is God's and the mistakes are mine. So I wanted to, to talk today about, start in the first chapter of Romans. Um, the general theme of Romans being how to be right with God. That obedience to the law is not what justifies the believer, but rather it's faith that justifies the believer before God. So if you want, would open up to Romans 1, we'll start in verse 1 and we'll go through 17. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have intended that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are also, also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Before we get to the crux of this passage, I want to do a little bit of background. What, What was Paul's occasion for writing this epistle to the Romans? We think it was written around 57 AD during the reign of Nero. There weren't many Christians or Jews in Rome at that time. They had been expelled less than 10 years before. And interestingly enough, they had been expelled from Rome over controversy and conflict among them over Christ. The conflict between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians was over does one need to become Jewish and observe the law before they can be welcomed into the assembly of faith? This was exacerbated by the libertine nature of Rome, where anything went. Roman contemporaries at the time described Rome as a cesspool of iniquity. And a contemporary of Paul's at the time said that it was a filthy sewer into which the dregs of society flood. So all the more to be set apart, we must, the Judaizer said, we must observe the law. We must be set apart. We must be different. We can't be like these Romans. And there were also critics of the Christians already in Rome who were distorting the message of the gospel. The true gospel that Paul talks about in 1 through 5 concerning Jesus the Son of God who was promised through the prophets, both fully man, fully God, who rose from the dead through whom we've received grace to bring about obedience. 
elsewhere in the New Testament in 1 Timothy, in short, Paul writes, the gospel is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And full stop. That is the gospel of God. The false gospel that was being preached by critics was that our sinning makes God's righteousness more evident. So our sinning brings glory to God, magnifying his righteousness. So we should keep sinning that God is more glorified and he's not justified in condemning us. That was the gospel that was being distorted in Rome. And that's the occasion of Paul's writing this, to correct the record, that that is not true gospel. True gospel is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Martin Luther once wrote that the book of Romans is purest gospel. From start to finish, it is nothing but gospel. And in reading Romans, there's nothing in Romans that was not said by Christ himself. So we can take with full assurance that the message that Paul is bringing is not his own message, but rather it's the message of God. Much could be said about Paul's introduction in 1 through 7. We could spend weeks dissecting the nuance of 1 through 7, so the brief gloss over will hardly do it justice. Keep in mind, Paul hadn't yet visited Rome, so it would be necessary for him to lay out by what authority he teaches. He knows of the church in Rome. He says that they've become famous throughout the world for their faith. So Paul knows the Romans. The Roman Christians don't know Paul. So he lays out his authorization to speak. It's important to us today because we can trust that the, the word that Paul is bringing us is not his own authority, but it's the authority that he has been given by Christ himself on the road to Damascus. He refers to himself as a slave. A slave has no identity outside of their master. They have no existence outside of their master. The only existence Paul had was the existence that Christ gave him. But he's also an apostle. He's a messenger. The emphasis being on the one sending the message, not the one carrying the message. As I was studying, preparing for this, an interesting note about the word apostle did not originally refer to one person. The word apostle in Greek, apostolos, referred to a naval armada. It was, a, it was by necessity a military term. Over time, it came to mean the leader of that armada as a representative of the king. So an apostle is not just a messenger, but it's a messenger with authority. It's a messenger that has the force of the, mess, of the one who gives the message behind it. So what Paul talks about, we can take with full assurance that what the message that he gives is as from the mouth of Christ himself. What is this gospel that Paul talks about? He's, he talks about that this promise is not a new promise. This is a promise through the prophets. It's an old promise. It's a promise that goes back to the beginning, that there will be a redeemer, that there will be salvation for God's people. You can go back to the beginning in Genesis 3, where God says, he will bruise his head and you shall bruise his heel. In the prophets, in Isaiah, multiple times through Isaiah, we could spend all day looking at the prophecies of Christ and redemption in Isaiah. But Isaiah in chapter 53 talks about upon him was the chastisement that brought peace and with his wounds we were healed. There is redemption for God's people. And at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi, he talks about they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I take up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. There is redemption for God's people. That is the gospel 
that Paul brings. The message of redemption, the message that, there, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The message that Paul brings to the Romans with such urgency. And the ends of the gospel is to ultimately bring about the obedience of faith. Obedience being the initial response to grace and obedience being the ongoing response to the grace of sanctification. The gospel is grace. And that's the urgency that Paul wants to go to Rome to bring to the Christians in Rome the encouragement of the grace of the gospel. As Paul moves through his opening, we should take note that even though Paul had not yet been to Rome, had not yet met the Roman Christians and fellowshiped with them, yet he expressed pastoral care for the church in Rome. In verse 8, he says, I'm thankful for you. He's thankful for them because the church in Rome was already a beacon of light in a dark place. Remember, it was referred to as a cesspool of iniquity, and yet the church in Rome has been a light in a cesspool. He is encouraged by, his, by their witness to continue being a witness. He also prays for them in verse 9 and 10. He says, I remember you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's grace I might succeed in coming to you. Not just asking, that word there is begging, imploring, and pleading. It is a sense of, of heartfelt urgency that I must go to them. He loved them in verse 11 and 12. In verse 12, he says that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He loves them and he wants to both encourage and be encouraged by them. In verse 13 and 14, he talks about that he was under obligation. He was in debt to them. As an apostle to the Gentiles, he carried a message of salvation from God. And we would not be free of, and he would not be free of that debt until he discharged his duty. One can be under debt in two ways. One can be under debt primarily by borrowing a sum of money. And I am under debt to, I am in debt to you until I repay that. That's not the sense of debt that Paul is talking about. It's the second sense of debt. He's under debt because he has been given a message that he must carry to Rome, and he's not free of that debt until he's discharged it. And he's under debt as a slave of Christ. However, he talks about that he was not permitted to discharge that debt yet because work, God had work for him left in Asia. To the Greeks and the barbarians, both the wise and the foolish. To both the civilized world the world of the Greeks and the Romans, with their philosophies and their philosophers, to the people that society would say is attractive, but also to people that society looks down on, the barbarians, the unpleasant, the unattractive. Paul had an obligation to bring the gospel to the world. Paul talks about later in Romans in chapter 15 that it, it was his calling to preach the gospel not where Christ had already been named. Christ had already been named in Rome. So he was hindered in going to Rome until he had brought the gospel to people who had not heard it. And he was eager to visit them. He was eager to minister to the church in Rome. There's something in here for us. How do we relate to other Christians? How do we as a church proper here at Pillar Fellowship, how do we relate 
to other churches. Churches that we have never met, Christians that we've never met. We can look to Paul's example of longing to go to them. He loved them. He prayed for them. He was eager to encourage them. And all of that leads up to the thesis of Paul's entire letter to the Romans in in verses 14 through 17. In the ESV and in probably everyone else's translation as well, there's an unfortunate division between verses 14 and 15 as if Paul is talking about something entirely different. And it's a most unfortunate division because verse 16 is a logical continuation of the thought that Paul started in 14. He talks about that he is under obligation to the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Because of that, so he is eager to preach the gospel who's also, to those who are also in Rome. And he's eager because he is not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He's been in, he's in debt to the entire world with the gospel, so he's eager to share the gospel and to discharge that debt. The word, that, the word that's eager has a sense of urgency to it. It's not just, I would like to share the gospel if I can. It's not, I'll try to clear my schedule to see if I can make it. It is not a passive desire to go, but an active desire that will remove all barriers to going. And the only way that Paul can remove that barrier is to discharge his debt by bringing the gospel to a fallen world. He's eager to go because he's not ashamed of the gospel. The word there for ashamed means dishonor and disgraced because of misplaced support or alignment. Paul's saying, I'm not ashamed. I didn't back the wrong horse. Although the rest of the Roman world would say, yes, you did. Paul's statement has a meaning of confidence and assurance as one who can hold his head high. Why would Paul have to say that he's not ashamed of the gospel? Is there something inherently shameful about the gospel? Paul's ultimate answer is no. But why would he need to say that? Why would he say that? To the Roman world, the gospel was identified with a Jewish carpenter who was crucified. The Romans had no particular love for the Jews. They were viewed as an inferior and peculiar people to be tolerated with thinly veiled contempt. And Christ was crucified. The lowest form of punishment saved for traitors and people that they wished to so dehumanize that no one would dare follow in their footsteps. They would serve as a warning of don't do this, lest this happen to you. To the Roman world, it's shameful to follow this Jewish carpenter. Rome was a powerful city that ruled the known world with an iron fist. The gospel comes from Jerusalem, a conquered foe. The Christians of the day were not the elite of society. In fact, many of them were slaves. In fact, one of our epistles in the New Testament was written to Philemon regarding a slave. They had no identity of their own. They were the most, the slaves were the most shameful of society. Why would the Roman elite want to follow that? Rome had its great philosophers and philosophies. To Rome, Christianity was the story of a Jew who rose from the dead in defiance of belief and reason. Why would Rome want to follow that? Rome maintained a strict social class and people from one class did not mingle with those from the other and certainly did not view them as equals. In fact, they reveled in their superiority of people beneath them 
and yet Christians call each other brother and sister. Why would Rome want to follow that? From a Roman standpoint, what wasn't there to be ashamed of? From the view, from the point of the world, what wasn't there to be ashamed of in the gospel? From a Roman view that Christians really would, really should suffer disgrace for following such a savior. And to think that a Jewish tent maker bringing this message to Rome would be humorous if it didn't threaten to bring down the entire Roman order. Why wouldn't they look on the Christians as people who should be ashamed? And yet, Paul says, I'm not ashamed. Yes, every single one of those reasons is true. It does come from Jerusalem. The gospel is of a Jewish carpenter who was crucified. We do call ourselves brothers and sisters. We are slaves. And yet, I am not ashamed. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? In 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The origin of the gospel is God. He said this is he says this multiple times throughout Romans the gospel of God the gospel that proceeds from God the good news that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners the gospel is the grace that proceeds from God to salvation it's the operation of the gospel The operation of the gospel is from power. It's not just from God. It is the power of God. It's the power that proceeds from God. That while the prince of this world is powerful, God is more powerful still and is able to restore us to right relationship with him. In the Gospel of John, chapter 10, he says, I give them eternal life that they shall never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's not just the power that proceeds from God. It is an insurmountable power that proceeds from God, and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. Rome was enamored with power and Paul was bringing the one thing that had the power to transform its depravity in a way that nothing else could. The word power has a superlative sense to it, meaning it is the highest vehicle of God's power. There is no greater way that God can show his power. And this is a God who created the universe. And yet, the greatest show of his power is not his creation of the universe, but his redemption of his people. The gospel isn't simply the power to create. It is the power to restore. That's the message he's sending to Rome, to the Christians in Rome and the Judaizing Christians in Rome The law is never referred to as power. The law is referred to as many things. The law is never referred to as power. It's referred to as light. It's referred to as teaching. But there is no power in the law. In Romans 8, Paul says, For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. The law cannot save. The law has no power. The law has only 
condemnation. The law, because it has no redemptive power, preaching law to a fallen world will never bring about its salvation. Preaching the law to a fallen world will only bring about its condemnation. The cure for the infirmity of the law is the gospel of God. If we want to see the redemption of the world, we must preach not law, but gospel. The gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He's not ashamed of the gospel because of its outcome. The outcome of the gospel in verse 16, the outcome of the gospel is salvation. That word salvation, deliverance, rescue, preservation, and restoration. It is deliverance from the penalty of sin. A passage in Romans 6 that probably many of us know says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In John 10, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. And it does not escape my attention. It should not escape our attention. That is, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. He refers to the law as a thief. The thief doesn't restore. The thief only steals and kills and destroys. The law only assures our condemnation. Christ Jesus assures our life and assures it abundantly. He's not ashamed of the gospel because of its outreach. The outreach of the gospel is to everyone who has faith. To the Jew originally as it's promised through the prophets, but also to the rest of the world. Salvation is by the power of God to those who have faith. Faith is a a necessary condition to receive the full fruits of the gospel, which is salvation. And the condition of faith that man must have faith in order to be saved is only a condition that's necessitated by man's sinfulness. Prior to the fall, man was in fellowship with God. After the fall, in order to be redeemed, we must have faith. The writer of Hebrews states, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. In sum, despite the many reasons that the Roman world, that an unbelieving world would tell Christians you should be ashamed because of the origin, the operation, the outreach, and the outcome of the gospel, Paul says, I am not ashamed. Because God has reconciled us to himself. He has forgiven our sins. He has adopted us. He has indwelled his spirit within us. He has transformed us and he has introduced us into his community. Why would Paul possibly be ashamed of the gospel? We should take warning in this. Many churches today have made two errors in regard to the gospel. One, Many churches have compromised on the origin, the operation, the outcome, and the outreach of the gospel in a misguided attempt to welcome people into the building of the church and yet, ironically, never welcoming sinners into the fullness of the gospel. Others have doubled down on the law and said, to be saved, you must first stop doing this. 
you must first stop doing that. The world is full of sinners. They can do no other. Only the transformative power of the grace of the gospel can bring about the obedience of faith. The solution for sin is not law, but more gospel. The solution for failure to live up to God's standard is not more law, but more gospel. The gospel can only serve to steal and kill and destroy. The solution for our unbelief is not more law, but more gospel. The solution for faltering faith is to ask for faith. Christ says, seek and ye shall find. The solution to our faithlessness is to ask for faith. In Mark 9, where Jesus is confronted with a a father, a desperate father bringing his possessed son, saying, if you can, heal him. And Christ's response was, if you can, all things are possible to him who has faith. To which the desperate father responds, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to have faith, give me faith. And Christ's response is to heal the son. If we lack faith, we must ask for faith and it will be given. Why is faith? Why is the gospel? Why is faith in the gospel so important to an unbelieving world? And now Paul comes to it. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Everything else in the book of Romans builds out of that. The righteous shall live by faith, not by the law. The law only serves to condemn, to steal, and destroy. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteousness of faith flows from God, it is active. The gospel is divine activity. It is the, gos- the gospel is God's righteousness flowing from him to us. His righteousness making us righteous. It is also divine achievement. It will accomplish its ends. God's righteousness can do nothing but make the sinner righteousness when imparted. And it's from faith for faith. Literally, it is from God's faith to our lack of faith. From God's faith, he gives us faith. As Christ said to the father of the possessed child, all things are possible to him who has faith. I believe help my unbelief. From God's faith comes our faith. Our faith is a gift from God. And because of that faith that God has given, we shall live. As it is written, salvation through faith is not a new concept of the gospel. Salvation by faith is a very old concept. In the the prophet Habakkuk, in chapter 2, this statement in chapter 17, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is quoting the prophet Habakkuk. This is the first of three times that that passage is quoted throughout the New Testament. 
some background on that. Habakkuk is making his second complaint to God. Why does God remain silent when the wicked oppress the righteous? Why does God allow the, the wicked to prosper? And God's response, it's not time for the judgment of the wicked. In grace, I'm withholding my judgment. It's not time yet. The wicked are arrogant, and that's their downfall. The psalmist writes, in the, in the pride of his faith, the wicked one does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The wicked are arrogant. But on that day of judgment, those who are judged righteous because of their faith and the promises of God will be spared God's judgment and wrath. The words, by faith, talks not about how the Christian should live their life, but rather how a sinner becomes righteous. Paul Paul's urgent and pressing concern in this epistle is not how the righteous are to live their lives, although certainly the Bible contains a great many, a great many instruction to Christians about how Christians should live their life, what the life of the faithful should look like. But Paul's pressing and urgent concern is how the dead become alive again. If one is righteous, he shall live. One is righteous if and only if he has faith. Therefore, if one has faith, he shall live. But what is faith? If we turn, turn to that, the passage of faith in Scripture, but, but we'll back up just before in Hebrews 10.35, in the introduction and the run-up into that. And this is, the, this is the third place in Scripture where that Habakkuk passage is quoted. The writer says, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For... Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is both assurance and conviction. The word assurance, it's a word that was often used in contracts of the day. It's a term that means a legal entitlement of possession. In a contract, the assurances are the penalty against the party for not fulfilling the terms of the contract. Essentially, it's coercion to ensure that the party follows through with what they said they're going to do. But faith is so assured, it requires no guarantee beyond the word beyond the word of the one making the assurance. God said it. It will happen. But faith is also conviction. The term here is a legal term referring to being convinced of truth by overwhelming and incontrovertible evidence despite not having seen it firsthand. There is no doubt remaining. Because of the conviction of the truth of the gospel, we have unwavering assurance in the outcome of the gospel. The outcome of the gospel is salvation and redemption of his people.
because of that assurance and because of that conviction of faith. Faith compels action. Faith does not require that we sit back and say simply, I believe. Faith doesn't ask whether I believe. Faith is so assured of belief, it compels action. Faith does not look backward at the gospel asking whether it's true. Faith is assured of the truth of the gospel and moves forward boldly in that truth. We have confidence to boldly proclaim the gospel to an unbelieving world, regardless the consequence. Martin Luther, in his preface to Romans, wrote this about faith. And I don't think I could have said it more clearly, so I'll quote Luther on it. Faith is not that human illusion and dream that some people think it is. When they hear and talk a lot about faith and yet see that no moral improvement and no good works result from it, they fall into error and say, faith is not enough. You must do works if you want to be virtuous and get to heaven. The result is that when they hear the gospel, they stumble and make for themselves with their own powers a concept in their heart that says, I believe. This concept they hold to be true faith. But since it is a human fabrication and thought and not an experience of the heart, it accomplishes nothing and there follows no improvement. Faith compels action. Faith is a work of God in us which changes us and brings us to new birth from God. It kills the old Adam. It makes us completely different people in heart, mind, senses, and all our powers and brings the Holy Spirit with it What a living, creative, active, powerful thing is faith. It is impossible that faith ever stop doing good. Faith doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before it is asked, it has done them. It is always active. Whoever doesn't do such works is without faith. He gropes and searches about him for faith and good works, but does not know what faith or good works are. Even so, he chatters on with a great many words about faith and good works. Faith is a living, unshakable confidence in God's grace. It is so certain that someone would die a thousand times for it. This kind of trust and this kind of trust and knowledge of God's grace makes a person joyful, confident, and happy with regard to God and all creatures. This is what the Holy Spirit does by faith. Through faith, a person will do good to everyone without coercion, willingly and happily. And he will, ser- he will serve everyone, suffer everything for the love and praise of God, who has shown him such grace. It is impossible to separate faith from works as burning and shining from a fire. Works of good works are the necessary outcome of faith. James talks about faith without works is dead. We've got to have faith. Faith compels us to do the work of the Father. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Christ says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Only the ones who do the will of the Father who's in heaven 
And we can only do the will of the Father who is in heaven with faith. Faith compels action toward the gospel. Faith compels us that we share the gospel. Faith demands that I proclaim the gospel. In his his last words on earth, Christ says to his disciples, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The gospel compels that I share it. Faith demands that I share the gospel. The gospel that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Faith demands that I show love to the sinner. To both the Greek and the barbarian. To people I find appealing and to people that in my flesh I would detest. The gospel demands that I show love to the sinner. James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I want to be careful here. Salvation is not through works. The gospel is consistent on that. The New Testament is consistent. James is consistent on that. Paul is quite clear on that. This is not to say that salvation is by works, but rather works are the necessary outflow of faith, so much so that works are the fundamental evidence of faith. Without works, there is no evidence of faith. Faith compels action. And it compels us to share the gospel. Someone once said, I don't respect a Christian who does not share his faith. How much must you hate someone to believe that everlasting life and salvation is possible and then turn around and to withhold that from them? What an epitome of hatred it must be to know the way of true faith and true life and to yet withhold that. Godly love that demands that we share the gospel with an unbelieving world. And we can do this because of the assurance and the confidence that we have in the gospel of God. Because the origin of the gospel is God. The operation of the gospel is in his power. The outcome of the gospel is salvation. And the outreach of the gospel is to everyone who believes. And we can share that and rest assured in that faith that regardless of the consequence and what may await us, we can boldly share that faith. As Christ says, and do not fear those who can kill the, bo- who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Because of the assurance and the confidence that we have in the sure truth of the gospel, 
we can share with an unbelieving world regardless of the consequence to us here. All religions lead to God. Only the gospel leads to God as Savior. All others lead to God as judge and executioner. Go forward in that assurance that we can share and rest in the assurance and the confidence of our faith in the gospel that Christ died to save sinners. And because of that, we can boldly go forward, fearing not the one who can kill the body, but serving the one who can preserve our soul. Let's pray. Our most gracious and righteous Father, Thank you for the gospel that you have given us. The gospel that your son Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And the assurance and the confidence that we can have in that gospel that will allow us to boldly go forward and share that gospel with an unbelieving world so that an unbelieving world may come to a saving faith that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's in your Son's most heavenly and precious name. Amen.